Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and verses 42 through 47. When the day of the Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pomphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Alex. Uh, Good morning and welcome. Uh, Last week we saw in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus actually said that the best would be yet to come for his church and for his people. And here today, now in chapter 2, it's actually happened. Something greater than having him present has come into the world, and it's a day actually called Pentecost. And those that were there on that day, though, actually couldn't see how amazing that it was for them and how impactful it would be for us today. As a matter of fact, they were so, I don't know, thrown off by the strange and bewildering things that we just read and saw there. It says they were actually perplexed. Perplexed, which means quite literally to be entirely at a loss. They were entirely at a loss as to what Pentecost meant. But we today, with roughly 2,000 years of church history in the rearview mirror, can actually answer that question. We can see a bit more clearly than they can. So, to see why Jesus called this moment the start of something greater than having him near, let's ask the same question they asked that day. They asked, what does this mean? Let's ask the same. What does all this mean? What does Pentecost mean? I'm going to suggest it means three things for us today. First, it means a new kind of people are coming into the world with a new kind of power held together by a new kind of presence. Let's begin at number one and see what kind of people that God is working with here. Who are these new people of God? Well, there are a lot of folks who, and maybe this is you, who have referred to this passage as the birth of the church, right? And that's mostly, partially, kind of true. And here's what I mean. The word church 
actually means the called out ones. The called out ones. And the ones who are called out by God to love him, represent him in the world. And therefore, if you know the story of the Bible at all, you actually know that God has been calling people out for a long time. Before this moment in Acts, at least as far back as Abraham, he calls to Abraham. He says, Abraham, come out from where you are and I'll bless you. And later God called out Abraham's family, his descendants, the children of Israel. He called them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He gave them the commandments, right? So the biblical pattern is that God calls people out and then he gives them something. So let's ask, what makes this moment so unique? Well, what makes this moment so unique is what God gives here. Because he doesn't just give his word. He doesn't just give his promise or a law. Here, God gives himself. He gives himself. He sends his spirit into the hearts of a group of people, and they are changed. It's amazing. But it isn't just what he gives that's unique. It's also who he calls out. Who does he call out here? Well, who does Luke tell you is there on that day, the day of Pentecost? It says here, Luke tells us, there are God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And with all gratitude and apologies to our scripture reader today, to Alex there, and he did a great job, by the way, didn't he? It was quite an effort he made there to flawlessly read the roll call of nations. What what Luke is not wanting you to miss here because he spends so much time listing all those places is that there are basically, you know, people from coast to coast there in Jerusalem. His list moves geographically from east to west. It would be like him saying there's folks from New York. Thank you very much, Tony. There's folks from Chicago. Where are you, Clyde Haynes, if you're in the house? People from Austin, Texas. That's us folks from LA. That would be my wife and about half of you in here. All right. Californians moving here to Austin. You would get it if you read his list. You would say, I see what he means there. There are people from all over the world gathered. And what are these people from all over the world here? It says, each one heard their own language being spoken. Wow. So the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples begin to speak in languages unknown to them here. And we'll come back to the whole tongues and languages thing in a bit. But the point is this. These people here did not speak the same native language, but they heard a message in their native language spoken by people who did not know or speak their native language. And what was that message? They said, we hear them declaring, what? The wonders of God in our own tongues. That phrase there, the wonders of God, means the saving work of God. All the things that God has done to save and rescue and redeem people, meaning this. Meaning this group heard the gospel in every language all at once. Here's what that means. It means that the first time the gospel was preached, it was not in one language to one culture. It was in all languages meant for all cultures. See here, God is creating one new kind of people in the world, a kind that had never existed before through the preaching of the gospel in many languages simultaneously. 
So what does this show us about the new people of God? Three implications here. I'm going to belabor the first and be briefer on two and three. All right, three implications of a new kind of people. This means, Pentecost means, there's actually no one right culture. See, all cultures, Pentecost is saying, are equally, you should say amen to this, loved by God. All cultures are equally, you should say amen to this, honored by God. They all heard the gospel in their native language. And equally, though, in need of salvation and transformation. This is a really big deal. I mean, you keep the amens coming about every 30 seconds. I'm I'm, I'm kidding. We'll, We'll never get through. All right. This is a, a, a big deal, and let me show you why. There's a, a brilliant African professor at Yale Divinity. His name is Lamine Sana, and Sana has written a great book called, and you should read it, uh, Whose Religion is Christianity? And in the book, he counters the objection, which you hear all the time, that Christianity is a destroyer of cultures. And actually, to counter that, he points right here to this passage, Acts 2 to Pentecost, and he contracts, contrasts Pentecost with Islam, which says basically that God speaks Arabic. And if you go get a copy of the Quran and you read it in English, which I have, they'll tell you while it's nice that you're reading it, you can't really, though, they'll tell you, understand it or grasp it because you don't speak or read Arabic. And Sana points out, as a former Muslim himself, that unlike Christianity, which comes into a culture and elevates it, Islam has a cultural center which it imposes on places it goes because, here's the point, Islam has a language and language is the carrier of culture. Which is why Christianity is utterly different. See, because of Pentecost, there's no one Christian language, no one Christian culture, which is why Christianity can come into and flourish in places as diverse as the Philippines or China or Brazil or Nigeria or, yes, the good old U.S. of A. Because when Christianity moves into a culture, it does two things. At first, it actually challenges we've said, challenges every culture to a degree with the things that don't line up with the gospel, with the truth of God. See, in Western Christianity, it challenges our bent towards truthlessness, towards believing there's no such thing as absolute truth. Christianity says there is such a thing as absolute truth. There is not many ways to God. There is one way to God, and his name is Jesus. And yet on the other side of the world, to the African person, Christianity tells the story of a man dying for his enemies, challenging in that culture. So Christianity first challenges every culture because no culture is inherently automatically Christian. And yet on the other hand, Christianity honors every culture in a way no other system of thought does. Now, if you're a guest and you're not admitting that and you're saying, well, you know, I'm more of a secular person, Morgan, and secularism, I think, honors every culture because secular culture looks to honor diversity. Well, Dr. Sana says, actually, no, it doesn't. He says secularism actually destroys the heart of what it means, for example, to be an African. 
So, because uh, he asks, what does it mean to be an African? And many of you who are African, got some African folks here, you know, uh, to be African means you have at the heart of your worldview a world full of spirits, supernatural powers, angels, demons, cosmic supernatural warfare. That's at the heart of the African perspective. So what does secular culture do to the African worldview? Well, it says everything at the very heart of you is wrong. It's wrong. No such thing as a supernatural world. So yeah, come on into our diversity celebrations. We like your clothes. You can wear those. You can even bring your food. We like that. But the heart of who you are, you got to check at the door. See, talk about condescending. But Sana says this, he said, I love this, that Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. There's no one Christian culture. Yeah, because of Pentecost, Christianity honors every culture, every person, but renews it and challenges it at the same time. All right, told you I believe that. Number two, second implication, a bit shorter. Pentecost actually shows us the church is supposed to be diverse. See, God in his sovereignty made sure there were people from all over the world before he sent the Holy Spirit. He could have done it at any moment, at any time. Why wait for this moment? Here's why. Because God was creating an intentionally diverse church. Pentecost means God was being diverse on purpose. And therefore, I have to ask, why shouldn't we be? In the rest of the book of Acts, the New Testament is actually, it shows the first Christian church wrestling with this, working this out, people getting offended about it, followers making mistakes, leaders making lots of mistakes, people stepping on each other's toes. It shows that some people don't like even the conversation about it. Yeah, why can't we just get beyond the whole Jew-Gentile conversation? This was challenging for them, and it is for us. But Pentecost shows us God is diverse on purpose. The third implication, briefly, the honoring of the Holy Spirit is actually what makes multi-ethnic church possible. It's just a sociological fact. Churches that welcome the Holy Spirit, preach about his person, doesn't teach the Holy Spirit as sort of like, you know, the silent member of the Trinity, you know. <laughs> Got that from my friend Anthony. They don't avoid him, box him in. They are the fastest, most growing, diverse churches in the world. See, show me a church that theologically denies the power of the Holy Spirit for today, and I'll be willing to bet that majority of the time, that church is monoethnic. So that's number one. The Holy Spirit has come. Pentecost means that God is making a new people in the world, of all peoples. But second, let's ask, how is this going to happen? What's going to hold them together? What's going to give them the ability in the world to do this? Well, secondly, the Holy Spirit has come to bring us a new power, a new power. And of course, you know this. This is what this passage is famous for. And if you grew up in a church where this was preached all the time, you maybe got tired of it. Some of you grew up in a church that never touched this at all, you know, because it was sort of odd and it was perplexing, right? But let's look here at the three supernatural elements of this passage and look carefully because they might not be what you think. Look at verse two. It says, suddenly, first element, a sound what? Like 
the blowing of a violent wind. Then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. So notice what's happening here and not happening with the first two. Here there isn't actually a wind, there's just a sound like a wind. There's not actually fire, but what seems to be fire, their language is struggling to grasp this. And if we didn't actually have the Old Testament to help us here, the Hebrew Bible, it'd be hard to grasp what this means. But thankfully we have it. And throughout the Old Testament, violent wind, fire, earthquake, these things were tokens of God's presence and power and primarily judgment. And God came down, for example, on Mount Sinai, right, in a storm with violent wind and with lightning, with fire there, with, uh, with Moses, with Elijah, with the same elements he came later. And every Israelite knew those were indicators of two things. Number one, that God had come near. And number two, they were in trouble. Uh, they were probably in trouble. See, because God's person, presence directly was lethal to humans because God is not a toy you pick up. He's not a lamp you rub. He's not a servant you call. God is holy. But, but there was always a place separate, the point is, from the people for his direct presence. He either stayed on the mountain or later behind a curtain in the Jewish tabernacle or a temple where only one priest could see it once a year. He was kept distant for the people's own protection. But here, now in Pentecost, in this room, these things that were, I don't know, kept hidden in God's closet are now brought out on full display, breaking out in a room full of people with no priest, no mountain, no curtain, no distance. Oh, why? Oh, because Jesus had become their one universal priest, because Jesus' sacrifice of the temple curtain was ripped that day as a teaser trailer for the day of Pentecost. And because these first two elements happen here, now the third can take place. It, said all, it says all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So here, it's speaking in literally other languages. Later on in the New Testament, we see Christian people speaking in languages unknown to any person. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I pray with my spirit. I utter mysteries. No one understands what I'm saying. So it goes above and beyond the mind. But then a few verses later after this, there are signs, wonders, miracles done by the apostles. And then a little later after that, there are signs and wonders and miracles done by non-apostles, by average, ordinary Christian people like you and like me. See, Acts 2 is telling you, anyone can experience the filling of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives what it means. Now, although I grew up in a church, maybe like some of the churches that you may have grown up in, I never heard that. That never came out of the minister's mouth. (laughs) But the night I became a Christian, God said, actually, it is going to be for you, son. Uh, That night I became a Christian. You may know my story. A man called me out of the crowd, began to prophesy over me. He began to say things that only a supernatural God with unlimited knowledge could know about me. It was amazing. And at that moment, I felt God's presence and love so strongly. I began to weep uh, and snot. And this big minister guy had to, had to hold me up. I repented of my sin. I gave my life to Jesus. And when I sat back down next to this guy, I didn't know whose name I found out was Matt Rash. Some of you know that name. We both began 
to laugh uncontrollably. Now that sounds uh, weird, and it was, but it was awesome. Uh, it was the deepest, most refreshing, most freeing thing I've ever experienced. We just laughed and cried and cried and laughed and wiped each other's noses. Not really, but that, that could have happened because we were both crying and that would have been weird. <laughs> You know, guys, we pass the Kleenex, right? We don't actually touch the other guy's face, right? Just the man law there. But two weeks later, I came back to the same group, and the, the, camp, the full-time campus pastor called me out of the crowd again. And he said, Morgan, I feel like we ought to pray for your legs. And I thought, well, okay, I'm up for anything, because last time that was awesome. But what he didn't know is I actually had had years of chronic back pain. I thought, legs, I don't know, back pain I would be up for. From the time I was 14, I'd had chronic back pain, went to doctor after doctor, no one could figure it out, solve it, x-rays, whatever, indicated nothing. I learned to live with it. Here I was as a freshman trying to get a starting spot on the baseball team. The back pain is coming back again. But as I'm coming forward out of the crowd, he says, Morgan, you know, a lot of times back pain, uh uh-oh, back pain can be caused by one leg being slightly shorter or longer than the other. Sure enough, I sat down, put my legs out, and there I was, and one leg was slightly shorter than the other. That little group of students gathered around me, including my one-day-to-be wife, Carrie, so I have an eyewitness, and they prayed for me, and I watched my other leg grow out even with the other one. The miracle. Yeah. And you're sitting in stunned silence, right? Yeah, I, I get it. I'd never seen anything like, like it before. And I walked out of there free forever from back pain. No back pain ever again. Jesus had healed me. Yeah. And that's amazing. And, but usually when I tell that, the, the stories, the, especially the whole miracle leg deal, I get one of three responses from a skeptical person. I usually get, well, maybe, and somebody told me this, you hallucinated it. <laughs> oh, well, that's weird. People don't normally mm, hallucinate back pain or the healing of it, right? Or people with the, the miracle are sort of Christianish. They sort of try to explain what happened, like they've got a better explanation for what happened. Or three, some Christian people say, you've got to, you know, you should be worried about the devil because the devil loves to come and, you know, counterfeit signs and wonders. And I say, well, if that was the devil, well, then I guess give me more because that was the stupidest thing the devil ever did because all it did was make me serve Jesus with all my heart and turn me and our whole group into powerful, powerful witnesses for Jesus, which is the point of the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 says that you'll receive power, what, to show off? No. To feel good? No. To have a nice Christian club? No. Power to what? Be my witness, which by the way, that word in the Greek means to be my martyr. You'll get power to die. That's what the power is for, see? And then I begin to pray. I begin to pray for all the other injured folks on my college baseball team. The medical staff at U of H began sending me some of the folks they couldn't figure out and they couldn't fix and some of them would get healed. And the coaches, when some of the pitchers had arm problems, would send those guys right over to me. Obviously, out of their own interest, right? Because they wanted to win. They didn't care how it happened. But And some of those pitchers will get healed. I'll save some of those stories for later in a series. But the point is this. This power was for not just the apostles, but for average, everyday Christians filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's for us too. After all, is he the God of I am or the God of I was? God of I used to be, but I'm not anymore. Oh, see, listen. 
My first 30 days as a Christian, I experienced all of this. Tongues, miracle, prophecy, word of knowledge. So when someone says to me those things aren't for today, I sort of look at them. All apologies, Brett. Like when someone tells me, no, the Falcons won the Super Bowl. Oh, that's wrong, right? No, I watched the game. It went better in first service, but anyway. Uh, Say, no. And they, I watched, you got more Falcons fans here apparently, but I saw it. I was a witness of what happened to me. I know actually what happened, not because I'm special or unique or deserved any of it. God's grace and mercy. Now, all that I've said is true. It's true. It's your choice to believe it or not. But regardless, maybe asking, well, all right, that sounds sort of likely, you know, highly interesting. How can I experience that too? Well, first of all, we should acknowledge that up to a point, there's just a bit of mystery to this, right? Because the text says what? It was the Holy Spirit who enabled this, brought it about. So there's not a formula for it, but there is a clue. And that clue to access the power of the Spirit is the word expectation. Expectation. See, these people, they were gathered, what? Expecting something to happen. Actually, someone to come. Jesus had told them to gather and wait. And when you wait, why do you wait? Because you're expecting something to happen, to begin, someone to arrive, you see. Over in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells that church, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Do we do this? Do we eagerly desire spiritual gifts? You say, I want to obey the Bible. Let's obey that verse too, right? So do we, when we gather, do we expect the Holy Spirit? When we wait upon God, do we expect his power? Do we eagerly desire these gifts? Now, there's much more to this than what I've shared today or what Acts 2 talks about. If there's something that piques your interest, like to learn more about, We've got a class coming up this summer for you. We're going to unpack all of this, teach it, hopefully see it released in your life. Now, all right, let me set up my last point with the question. If you're from a background here and you say, you know what, Morgan, I've seen a lot of this stuff abused, you know, like the whole prayer cloth on the phone or, you know, give my love offering, you know, light on the love, heavy on the offering, actually, into the guy on TV. And I've seen, some of you will get that later, have seen some abuses with it. Or if you're from a background where you say, well, I don't know, this is all super new. How can we handle this rightly? Let me just suggest to you, there's actually something this passage shows us to give us all of that. How we can move in and handle well the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, this passage shows us there's a new kind of presence. There's actually something so new here, people don't know even what to think about it. And verse 13 says some, some people actually made fun of what was happening, and they said, oh, they've had too much wine. <laughs> now, why would they say this? Well, what happens when you, no, check that, when someone else is drunk, right? Uh, see, people, when they drink, they're inhibitions are lowered, right? They tend to be more honest, more emotional, more relaxed than they normally would. And by the way, let's all just admit that inhibitions are there for a reason, right? They keep us from doing stupid stuff, all right? So here's the other thing about alcohol. 
it's only a temporary masking agent of sorts. It only makes you feel relaxed or vulnerable because it tricks you momentarily. It's a depressant. Not that it makes your, you know, your brain it makes you, you know, depressed you know, chronically, but it depresses, it pushes down, submerges your brain, which is why you tend to make stupid decisions, right? When you know, check that, other people drink too much. And so, yes, on the surface, people under the influence of the Holy Spirit, can look like they've had too much to drink. Why? Because their tendency towards self-preservation is lower. Their selfish inhibitions are lowered. They forget about the self. They're more honest, more vulnerable. And on the surface, this can look like you're just drunk. But here's the difference. With the Holy Spirit, unlike alcohol, it's not temporary. It's permanent. It's permanency. It's what the New Testament says here. When the Holy Spirit moves in your life, you're not worldly drunk. You're not even, sorry, Beyonce drunk as in drunk in love, right? What Acts 2 shows us is that Christians are supposed to be drunk with love, with love, because that's what the presence of the Holy Spirit means in a life or community. It means a kind of love that creates honesty, vulnerability, selflessness. You know what my favorite moment in churches. You're saying, no, I don't, but I'm guessing it's about to come. All right. Now, I've got a lot of moments I love. I love when our team leads us in worship. I love seeing all of you every week when we get the, hey, how are you? How's your week been? Your updates? If I haven't seen you since last Sunday, how are your kids, family, all of that? I love it all. But my actually favorite moment is when one of my children comes up to me after the service, after whatever service they attend. And usually I haven't seen them yet because I, I get up early and I slave over a hot Bible to make sure the word's hot for you, you know? And so I haven't seen them yet and they come up and they, they greet me. And, if, and a lot of times, of course, I'm probably talking to one of you. And if I'm talking to one of you when this happens, just know you, you are at, you're very important to me. But whenever one of my children comes, I'm going to greet them. Especially my daughter, she's the only one I can still pick up anymore, and she's eight, and she'll come up to me, and she'll, she'll jump up in my arms, and if you're there, and you're watching us, it might get a little awkward, because we're going to hug, and we're going to hold, and we're going to kiss, and I'm going to tell her that I love her, and she's going to say she loves me, and she's going to go down, she's been changed in a way, and she's going to run off and probably get three minutes from the thing at the coffee bar, and run laps around the sanctuary like she owns a place, and... But I tell you all that to ask you this question. Before I picked her up and held her, was she any more my daughter? Was she more my daughter in my arms or out of my arms? Well, of course, the answer is neither. Her status as my daughter is unchanged no matter where she is. But the moment I hold her and the moment she experiences again in her heart what she knows in her head as fact, it changes her. It fills her with something she wasn't experiencing a moment before. It's her father's love for her. And both Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul say that's what the Holy Spirit's role is in our life. It makes the experience of the Father's heart for us real and present and tangible. It makes us cry out, oh Abba, oh Daddy, I love you. I can feel your love. I know you love me beyond my performance or my circumstances or my appearance. Thank God for that, right? You love me deeply, truly, madly, perfectly with a daddy love greater than even the love of the greatest earthly father 
that's what the Holy Spirit brings, a new love, because God is love. And when God sends his spirit, he's sending himself and he's sending love. And so, of course, you know, when you feel loved by someone, what do you do? Some of you say, man, I married that person, right? (laughs) You drop your inhibitions. You become vulnerable or passionate, giving selfless because you're filled with love. It pushes out everything and you're able to give anything away. And that's why you see this first Christian community in Acts acting this way. Look at the end of chapter two. We read it. It said, oh, I love that. All, all the believers, not some, not even most, all of them were together, had everything in common. They sold property, possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes with glad and sincere hearts. Why? Oh, they weren't drunk in love. They were drunk with love. And you notice, of course, what they're not saying here. They're not saying... My needs aren't getting met in this community. There's not saying, I'm tired of meeting with my small group every day, the same people, you know. They're not saying, I'm getting tired of that same teaching. They're not saying, what's in it for me? When's it going to be the way I want? See, when you're drunk with love, you quit talking like that. There's no law they're obeying here. There's no commandment they even point back to. There's no one holding a gun to their head. There's just a powerful internal compulsion to give their lives away. See, if the presence of the Holy Spirit this is showing us is really in your life, you're going to be like this. You're going to be a giver, a giver of self. Certainly your, your finances, you literally can't help it. And if giving away substantial amounts of your income sounds crazy to you. It just shows you you haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit like this. You don't understand love. You don't need a sermon to convince you to give. Come on. You don't need a big giving campaign, a big pitch about how worthy this church is or some cause. You don't need that. You just need love. It makes you give. And if the presence of the Holy Spirit is in your life, being around like with these folks, other Christians is going to be a priority. You're going to put your time, the point is, into building strong, vibrant, honest, vulnerable community. You won't just drop into church like a paratrooper every once in a while, right? <laughs> to get your social or psychological needs met or because you're feeling guilty and you haven't been in six weeks. You'll, become, you'll come because of the same reason these did. They had glad and sincere hearts. No one made them do this. They just wanted to because they were drunk with love. And isn't that what Jesus has done for us, right? Didn't he move out of his place of safety? Wasn't he full of the love of the Trinity? Didn't he come to a world full of risk? And didn't he risk so much it cost him everything? And in the end, he was crucified because of that risky love and raised from the dead because of that risky love so that this moment in Acts could happen. This beautiful moment of Pentecost. And by the way, if you know your Bible, you know something else is happening here. A lot of theologians have picked up on it over the years. It's the reversal of something. The reversal of the curse of something called the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. A story where people's pride, greed, desire for lust, and to make a name for themselves surpass their desire for love for God and their fellow man. And God in Genesis comes and scatters them, and he says he confuses their language, their language. And they all gave up. 
They went their own way. They began to allow language and therefore culture to be their primary identifier and outlier of their identity. But here in Pentecost, it's all being reversed and undone. All peoples together again. Instead of confusion, there's understanding. Instead of languages being something that pull people apart, God works through language to pull people together. Instead of people living to be someone, you see people now living to serve someone. It's a radical reversal because that's what love does, what pride tears down, love restores. And what it means in the end to be a part of this church is to be part of a Pentecost project being made into a new people with a new power held together by a new kind of presence. The love of God in our midst and hearts.